Question 108. What does the preface of the Lord's Prayer teach his disciples? The answer is the preface of the Lord's Prayer, which is Our Father in Heaven, teaches his disciples, commonly called Christians, to draw near to God with all holy reverence and confidence as children to a father, able and ready to help them, and that they should pray with and for others. So question number one, what is the purpose of this preface? The short answer is it teaches us how to address God in prayer. It teaches us how to address God in prayer. The preface contains directions on how to approach the one real God who alone is to have our worship, including our offerings of prayer. This pattern or example of our Father directs us to call on God using one of his suitable names or titles or attributes. And of course the phrase our Father is particularly suited to our ordinary prayers. We are needy. God is a perfect Father who, like good human fathers, is able and ready to help his helpless children. So when we need our daily bread, we ask our Father. When my children were small and I worked in the computer field, they didn't come up to me and say, Hey, Director of Production Systems, would you get us this or that? They said, Dad, We learn this pattern not only here from Christ, but also from the prayers of holy men and women in other parts of the scriptures. Solomon's prayer in 1 Kings 8 illustrates this pattern, where God is addressed by a name, a title, an attribute. He asks the faithful, covenant-keeping God to make good his promise to his, his father David. So Solomon knew how to appropriately address God in prayer. So do believers in the early church. Um, An example I keep going back to with a number of you because I think it's uh, very underappreciated in in the church today, but it's Acts 4, 24 to 30. What does the church say? They say, Sovereign Lord, creator and preserver of all, You whose will determines all things. Mere men have threatened your church. Hear us. They had a need for power, for protection. And so they called upon the all-powerful ordainer of everything that comes to pass. They addressed God in prayer using one of his suitable names, one of his titles, one of his attributes. And they knew that what we must learn, which is how to rightly address God. This means... Our Father is a proper way to do it, but it's not the only way to do it. It may be the ordinary way to do it, but it's not the only way to do it. So what's the purpose of this preface to teach us how to address God in prayer? Question two. Who is the Lord's Prayer particularly for? Well, as the answer says, His disciples or Christians. 
Now, this is clear for the following several reasons. First, it was the disciples of Christ who asked for the instruction and were given it. Another reason, the pronoun our, not I or me or my, our presupposes covenant relationship with the one pray, between the one praying and God. Sometimes the smallest words in the Bible have the greatest meaning. This is one of them. Non-Christians have a father. He is their father. They can call him our father. But it's the devil or Adam, depending on which text you're thinking of. But only Christians can properly call upon God as our father. So God becomes our God and we become his people by the blood of the new covenant. Well, someone might say, yes, but, but shouldn't everyone, not just true Christians, call on God as our father? Yes, they should, but they won't do this in truth and faith and reverence. Instead, it will be like the Israelites of Jeremiah's day, who in spite of their spiritual adultery, say in Jeremiah 3, 4, now, now listen to this, they're speaking to God, my father, my friend from my youth, will you always be angry? Will your wrath continue forever? And the text goes on to explain that God hears them, but he doesn't heed them. Of course, he knows what they're thinking and saying, but he's not really paying any attention. Why? Because he answers them this way. This is how you talk, but you do all the evil you can. See, no one who rightly calls upon God as our Father does all the evil that they can. God is saying, yes, your speech might be formally correct, but your life doesn't match your words. So yes, men should call upon God as their Father, but they don't do so, or they do so insincerely because they lead a wicked life. So the Lord's Prayer is particularly for Christians. Now let's speak a moment, question three, about in what ways is God a father? We could talk about how God is the father of Christ, God is the father of angels in a certain sense. They are, they are called the sons of God in places. That isn't the subject in view. We're just talking about in what ways is God a father to men, to ordinary men? Well, according to scripture, here's the short answer. God is a father in two ways, by creation and by salvation. There are a number of texts in the Bible, not not a large number, but some well-known places where it is clear that God is a father to men by creation. Malachi 2.10, have we not all one father? Did not one God create us? You see, there the making of men, the creating of men, is how the relationship of father is established. Or Isaiah 64.8, Yet, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. In the making of us, God is our Father. Or in the New Testament, 
Acts 17, verses 24 to 29. It says, God gives all men life and breath. From one man he made every nation of men. So what does Paul conclude? That all men are God's offspring. He's their father. In some sense, he birthed all men. And more than that, there even exists a relationship of likeness between God and men in creation. Because men are fallen, they don't lose um, in, all, in, the, in the full sense. They do not lose the image-bearing quality of humanity. So in these verses, we see that God is a father to men because he is their maker. But more importantly, and the overwhelming testimony of Scripture, is that God becomes some men's father by salvation. By, the way, by way of the benefits of salvation, and especially adoption. John 1.12, to those who believed on his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Wait a minute. I thought they were already, by creation, the children of God. Yes, and now they've become the children of God by faith, by belief on his name. Ephesians 1.5, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight, in love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. So one of the peculiar blessings of salvation, one of the goals of God's saving choice and preordination of men, one of the results of our faith is being adopted as sons. Our Heavenly Father doesn't adopt all of his rebellious created sons to be his saved sons. But he does take some in this second way. And so John says in 1 John 3, 1, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. Question four, what kind of children are Christ's disciples? Well, they are created and adopted. Right? That's all of us who are true Christians are the children of God by creation and by adoption. Now you might say, well, Pastor, that seems kind of silly to remind us that we're children by creation. I mean, that's kind of obvious, isn't it? Well, it's good to always teach as much of a balanced uh, dose of truth as we can give because men are always perverting it in one direction or another. You know, there are some religious teachers today, some sects, even some large uh, uh, groups like the Mormon Church, who insist on telling us that we're actually divine or we will become divine. No, no, we're not. And no, we will never be. We are clay formed by the hand of God, our maker. But Romans 9.21 tells us that those who follow Christ are clay 
formed for a noble purpose. While the devil's disciples are clay made for a common purpose. The difference isn't that one piece of clay is created and the other is adopted. No, all are created, but some are additionally adopted as spiritual children. And it's only the followers of Christ who are reconciled, adopted, spiritual children of God. Again, 1 John 3.10. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. So natural men, created men, are not, in the spiritual sense, the children of God. The verse is very plain. People don't like the verse and argue against it because it is plain, and they recognize what it's saying, and they don't like that. In fact, this verse is directly contrary to classic liberal Christianity, which overemphasizes created sonship and merges it with spiritual sonship, and it destroys the distinction. Right? All men are God's children. God loves us all. Well, in one sense, we are all God's children, and yes, in one sense, God loves us all. And that can all be true, and you go to hell. Jesus is very plain. For even though all men are children of God by creation, ethically and spiritually, when they deny God, their maker by their works, they are rightly called the children of the devil. And so they must be adopted by grace through faith if they are going to leave the family of the devil and join the family of God. Romans 9, 8. It is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of promise. Just because you were formed by God doesn't make you his spiritual child. Let me summarize it and try to be clear if I haven't been. Christ's disciples are made of clay like other men, but they are then remade by the power of God to become his children. So, what kind of children are Christ's disciples? Created and adopted. That's who. Question five. How should spiritual children approach their Heavenly Father? In a short phrase, with reverence and confidence. With reverence and confidence. Because God is God... He must always be approached with reverence. His godness, his awesome majesty doesn't disappear because we are adopted as spiritual children. So we must never be thoughtless, rushed, or casual with God in prayer. Ecclesiastes 5. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. Many words are meaningless. Therefore, 
stand in awe of God. Yes, even in worship, even in prayer. Malachi 1.6, God says, if I'm a father, oh good, God's going to relax here. <laughs> no. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? And the phrase, our father in heaven, reminds us that respect is due to God in our prayers because he is more than a mere father. He is our father in heaven. But at the same time, and here's the balance of truth, we are not to so understand reverence that it stops us from coming to God or stops us from speaking to God. We should come confidently to God. Yes, it's true we are, as the writer just said, we are on earth and he is in heaven, but we are also, as Christians, in the heavenly realms with Jesus Christ. That's true also. We are promised blessings in him, and we've been given the deposit of the Holy Spirit. And these things give us boldness. They give us confidence. They give us freedom in prayer. Ephesians 3.12, in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Romans 8, 14 and 15, those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. So we can come with assurance to God in prayer because we have his spirit within us who testifies that we are God's children and he is our loving and reconciled heavenly Father. So there's the balance. Reverence and confidence. Question six. Should Christians only pray to God the Father? Um, I'm always surprised at how common this question is, and that's not a scolding. Um, it's just It just means we need to keep explaining it and reminding each other of it. Should Christians only pray to God the Father? The answer is no. They may pray to the triune God in any of his persons. We know this because, first of all, each person in the Godhead is the same in substance, equal in power and glory. The three persons are one God, and each person deserves our worship, including being called on in prayer. So as Fisher, and now you all know who Fisher the Catechist is, don't you? Um, so as Fisher says, when any of these adorable persons is addressed, we are in our minds to include the other two. So when we pray to the Father, we're not excluding the Son or the Spirit, for they are one God. So that's the first answer. Each person is the same in substance. Secondly, we have many approved examples in the Bible of praying not only to God the Father. Many times in Scripture, the one praying calls on God or the Lord without specifically addressing any one of the persons. And so in doing that, we are really addressing all three persons of the Godhead. But there are also specific examples. Acts 7.59, Stephen is being stoned, and what does he 
What does he say? What does he pray? Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. You see, he's praying to the second person of the Trinity. However, the New Testament saint will most often call upon his heavenly Father because that is the specific example given by Christ and because he understands in greater fullness the work of each of the three persons. Prayers are to the Father, through the Son, by the help of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Many more examples could be given, but that's the shorter answer. Question seven. Oh, um, you know, often when we are uh, singing before the sermon, we're addressing specifically God the Holy Spirit, aren't we? That's a form of prayer. I've been working with several of the men about um, uh, learning how to lead in worship. And one of the things we're learning that is the is that the line of division between singing and praying uh, may be a little fuzzier than we're used to thinking. Um, singing is a form of prayer in a very real sense. The Psalms are said to both be songs in the Bible and they're also in the Bible said to be prayers. They are both at the same time. Um, so there are many examples of that. Question seven. What confidence should God's children have in him in prayer? Well, they can be certain of his power and willingness for them. This is the confidence when we come to God in prayer. God is for us. God is able and ready to help. He is all-sufficient. He is generous. He is perfect beyond any good human father. Matthew 7, 7 and following. Ask, it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. These are all invitations to come to a ready and able Heavenly Father. Everyone who asks, receives. He who seeks, finds. The one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, so here's an argument from the lesser to the greater, from the imperfect to the perfect. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Now this isn't mockery. This isn't irony. This isn't giving hope to the hopeless. Well, you know, the only thing that really matters in prayer is that people feel better doesn't matter if the God really exists, right? I mean, there are, there are a number of atheistical medical doctors who absolutely encourage their patients to pray. They say, if you believe, please pray. We, we actually can see a medical difference, a statistical difference in how people recover from things um, if they pray. Um, of course, they don't actually believe there's any objective reality to that. They don't believe there's actually a God hearing and answering prayer they just believe it's a psychological trick you're doing. But since you believe it, it works. Um, But prayer is not a placebo. Prayer is real. It's genuine communication between a child and his heavenly father. And it does real good. These verses truly reveal God's heart 
to his people. God is not just a power. He is a willing and loving power. He is a generous all-sufficiency to give us confidence to offer up our desires to God in prayer. I keep uh, Heidelberg Catechism number 26 around because I need to be reminded of it sometimes. It says this, What do you believe when you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth? Part of the answer is, I believe that the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is for the sake of Christ his Son, my God and my Father. In him I trust so completely, the answer goes on to say, as to have no doubt that he will provide me with all things necessary for body and soul and will also turn to good whatever adversity he sends to me in this valley of tears. And I love this last line. These are the reasons for faith. He is able to do so as Almighty God and willing also as a faithful Father. You see, every time you pray, you're addressing Father, so he's willing. But in heaven, he's almighty, so he's able to do whatever you need. What a, what a beautiful way uh, to remind ourselves of the truth of Scripture. Question eight. Should Christians pray with each other? Yes. Yes. Corporate prayer is ordained, and prayer should often be corporate. To gather together for prayer was the practice, it was one of the zealous works of the early church, right? Acts 1, 14, Acts 2, 42, and other places. The apostles set the example, and the church followed. They devoted themselves. They consistently, regularly, frequently prayed, just like they heard the apostles and uh, took the Lord's table and gave. They also prayed. Christians today are still the body of Christ, and while individual prayer is right and profitable, yes it is, corporate prayer depicts our unity in Christ as one leads and all the others join in, not only with their attention, but their what? Their amen at the end. Corporate prayer must be done in worship, but of course it may also be done to profit in families, between friends, and in all kinds of formal and informal settings of life. When Peter was in prison, Acts 12.12 says that many people had gathered and were praying. Well, may God help us like them to value corporate prayer more highly and plead um, for what we desire uh, until God gives it to us as he gave the early church. Um, this might be a good time to, to kind of raise the question, and I'm just going to answer it shortly. We'll probably talk about this more later. But, you know, does that mean that congregations could rightly pray the Lord's Prayer together in worship? Well, I, I think absolutely they could. We, we don't. We could. Perhaps we will. Um, because remember... We're not, we, Christ is not teaching us to pray, my Father in heaven. 
This is our Father in heaven. It is a joint prayer. Um, and certainly the Reformed tradition teaches us that uh, that can be done. It's commonly in the Reformed worship tradition. It's commonly done at the end of the pastoral prayer of intercession. And so that he doesn't finish and then everyone say amen. He finishes and then the people together say the Lord's Prayer, all, all of you. And, if, and, and by saying, you know, what follows for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And we all say amen together. It's one of the ways that um, amen has traditionally been done and used. Um, I, I like that and, and would very much like to do that, I think, at some point. Uh, question nine, should Christians pray for each other? Yes, and I love this answer. I've stolen this from either Fisher or, or um, Bedham. I don't remember which one, but absolutely theft in this case is, is bright and pure. Um, should Christians pray for each other? Yes, it is a great privilege to pray for God's favorites. I, I just, I love that quaint way of saying it. Yes, I'm praying for people that God dotes over, that he cares in a special way about. So why wouldn't I expect that as I go to him for them, that he wouldn't be listening and, and answering prayer? It is our delightful duty to pray for those that we know are loved by God, who looks with approval not just on us, but the ones we're praying for. Ephesians 6.18 states our duty clearly, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert, and always keep on praying for all the saints. There it is. It's your duty. We should, we must, it's a great privilege to pray for God's favorites. This means, though, that you have to be alert to each other. You have to know what's going on in each other's life. You have to know strengths and weaknesses. You have to listen when they talk. You have to listen to the heart behind what they're saying to know how to pray for them. But as Paul commands us, we should always keep on praying for all the saints.